Welcome to the fourth episode of the Fifth Quarter Podcast with me, David Elliott, from Lanyon Group. We're brought to you once again this month with the support of Armagh City, Bambridge and Craigavon Borough Council's Food Heartland. This month, we're going to be getting behind Yellow Door, the deli, restaurant and catering company, which is a habit of adding its magic to the best of Northern Ireland's produce. Founder Simon Dugan talks us through how the business has grown and diversified with the help of a talented and committed team as he readies the company for reopening in the very near future. Then we're going to be taking to the skies to hear from the Air Ambulance to find out how the service which many of us in the rural agri-food sector rely on operates. But first, over to Simon to get a sneak peek behind the yellow door. Simon, first of all, thanks for joining us today, because I know I know you're very busy getting ready for, for reopening and everything else. But can you give us a bit of background on yellow door? I mean, you're a name synonymous in the Northern Ireland uh, food world. But can you give us a background about how it all started? Well, that's a tricky one, David, but <laughs> we... Um... I was working as a chef in London and uh, came home for a bit of a holiday um, back in early, well, sort of early 90s, 93. Uh, and I helped a lady out with a, a restaurant, a little fine dining restaurant in Guildford. Um, and before I knew it, um, I was a partner in the business. Um, and uh, so I wanted to set up my own restaurant and I rushed and said, well, listen, why don't you, uh, why don't you just, I sell you half of this one. So that's how it started, sort of more or less by accident. Um, and then we, uh, rushing, painted the door yellow one day, and she says, let's call it the yellow door. And I said, that's a that's a really stupid name. And uh, she says, well, that's what all women do. They say, well, what are you going to call it? So I couldn't, I couldn't come up with anything, unfortunately. So yellow door it was, and that's it's been like that ever since, you know. And uh, I actually haven't painted any of my uh, premises yellow doors um, as nearly as a protest. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not what the name is. It's what it comes to represent. It's the important yeah. thing. Yeah. So um, after having the restaurant for a number of years, um, you know, fine dining is grand and it's lovely, but it's very regimented. And um, I quite like doing sort of, you know, what what's got, What's the fish man got today? So we decided we would open a little deli in Portadown, and it was a little huckster of a place at the bottom of Portadown Street, not very glamorous. It was an old butcher shop, and but you had the freedom to to cook um, whatever you wanted. So you just went in the morning, go into the fridge, grab some stuff, and God knows what we come up with. There was no labelling then, so the allergens were just as important. You could talk them through it, uh, but like the the counter was groaning with food, and it was such a relief to. And a joy to be able to cook stuff that you just really fancied on that day. Um, instead of having been sort of the, the regimented menu that you had to follow day after day. And then yeah. it obviously changed by the season. This was a lot more freer. And uh, we really enjoyed it. And customers really enjoyed it. Um, it was probably a little bit ahead of its time, um, David, because uh, I remember when we started baking our own bread. Um, we baked like Italian breads, like focaccia and ciabatta and stuff, and as long as as well as Irish breads, like soda and wheat and all that sort of stuff. But I remember customers coming in and said, "My goodness, Simon, there's glass on top of your bread. You've smashed the glass." And I was going, "That's rock salt." <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, but Northern Ireland has came an awful long way. Like that, we opened the deli in 1997. Yeah. Um, so that's a long, long time, and um, the whole food culture in Northern Ireland has is light years ahead of it was when it was back then. And um, so, 
one deli developed into uh, we started supplying belfast farmers market and we had our own stall there we were one of the founders and uh, we were selling more bread on a saturday in Port in belfast than we were in Port Iron all week and i thought there's a market there so uh so hence the lisburn road shop opened in uh was it 2001 2002 um, and then ob obviously other things happen like people ask me to do a wedding or do an event um we did one wedding i think in 2001 and we did three the following year and then we did 12 and now we're doing upwards to 150 200 events a year goodness so the whole thing is sort of a snowballed um uh, but i'm very proud that the ethos has remained the same you know we 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 make everything ourselves and it's probably a rod for our own back because we we smoke our own fish we make our own bacon we cure our own meats we um you know make all our desserts make our ice creams our sorbets our breads everything everything's from scratch and i think that's the only way you can guarantee the quality if you bring something that's really really good um and you know be careful what you do but don't try and um mess around with too much chefs are inclined to mess around with food and it doesn't resemble the the really great product they had in the first place um, and freshness is key and that's why uh, we've been able to grow a lot of stuff over the years and you know it's it's becoming a monster now with our orchard and our bees and our polytunnels and our flower you know our edible flower beds and all that stuff but I have to say it's uh, it's also great to be able to walk out there and, and when you come home from work and pick your 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 dinner which is fantastic so i'm still a chef at heart heart uh, i spend a lot of time in the office and um, write menus tendering for business um, and i suppose the thing is that the thing that i get into catering for the cooking is something that i do less nowadays than, than yeah. i used to you know Goodness me, and, and and it's a family business as well, Simon. You, it, it's it's not just yourself, but you've got a few members of the family working in the business. Yeah, well, I, I'm uh, from a big family myself. Um, I've got five. I'm the oldest, and I've got five sisters and four brothers. So huge uh, yeah. family um, in the business. So uh, at one stage there was eight of us uh, in the business. So a few have escaped since then. Uh, they all had to do their time. But uh, I have sisters who are teachers and uh, have gone to do other things. But we still have, uh, I think there's about four staffs or uh, family members. But then Yellowdoor Belfast and Catalyst and all the Belfast venues, including Ulster Rugby mm -hmm. and uh, Windsor Park and different venues up in Belfast, including the Lisburn Road Shop, is run by my cousin Andrew. Yeah. And uh, he's been there from the start as well. So, And then my, my other, his brother, Gary, uh, runs the bakery. Uh, my wife runs the the food the growing part of the business so yeah it's a it's very much a family business and, and it all works together you know the the, the the stuff that jilly's doing feeds into the business and, and and it all kind of works seamlessly together I, I suppose that it all just helps having family members that you can work with and, and that know what you need yeah and i i suppose for a family business um one of the biggest adjustments i made was work is work and outside work it's family so yeah. you know i'll be as tough or as nice in work um with all my employees including my sisters and brothers uh, yeah. but outside work that's a different thing and uh that was a sort of mindset change but we're well used to it now and that's you know we, we, we may have crosswords or whatever in work but it's all forgot about outside and vice yeah. versa yeah uh, it, it's been a it's been a really tough time over the last year 
for, for your business as it has been for thousands of business. Do you think that because it's a family business that just made you more resilient or more able to kind of flex through the, the difficulties that you've, you've had to face? Well, I do believe that, um, yes, family is is a great asset and a great help. But I have to say my staff have been brilliant. You know, they've been very understanding. Uh, they've worked bloody hard to get to this uh, stage and they, they share my ethos and um, they have been great and anything they could do to help. But I do feel for them, I have to say. Um, I've seen where some of them have sort of suffered uh, in terms of not what no direction in their life and looking at four walls. As I said to you earlier, I'm, I, I find myself very privileged to live in the countryside to have vegetables and stuff that I can work at. But someone who lives in the town who's looking at four walls, it's not so easy. So yeah. we've 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 set up WhatsApp groups within our staff, and we are communicating regularly and meeting up for walks and stuff like that when we can. So I think that has been an important part to keep morale high. Mm-hmm. And and we're speaking um, late April at, at the moment. You're you're hoping to get things back up and running. Yeah, uh, certainly in the in the foreseeable future. Yeah, um, well, twenty fourth of May is the date we've been given for sit in, and uh, we're we're gearing up for that. And uh, but some of the other businesses, like our Hillsborough uh, outlet, has been working five days a week, and that is a sort of visitor attraction where you can walk around the gardens. Unfortunately, we've only been able to sell art through a window, um, but right. um, it, it, we I, we have to pass a few lights through the window. <laughs> We've had to move characters. We've had to do all sorts of stuff. Uh, Barry Smith's my business partner, and he's been absolutely brilliant. He's reinvented that place I don't know how many times, uh, but he keeps battling away. And uh, we've got some very, very loyal customers, um, and they have supported us through this. Uh, And they have been a godsend to, to to give the staff a morale as well. And they've been sending messages through social media and stuff, enjoying what little we could, uh, were able to provide, you know. We also have used the time wisely to to look at what we do and look around us and see what's happening and see the trends. Uh, and one of the big things that we've done in Ported Iron, we're about to do in Belfast as well for our deli business, we've renamed um, Yellowdoor Deli um, slightly. We're calling it Market Deli by Yellowdoor. Right. Um, and we have extended, we've spent quite a lot of money on extending our retail range, yeah. including uh, fridges and freezers, new retail shelving. And we've been actively sourcing um, Northern Ireland product, uh, fresh product as well, like um, pâtés and, and um, like wild mushrooms. Like when you look around you, um, the amount of small producers uh, producing world-class stuff you know, yeah. like there's a wee guy in Marma who's doing wild mushroom now. There's a guy uh, just outside Tantrigay growing wasabi, like who thought, <laughs> who thought. Um, so, you know, there's been lots of little things that we've yeah. been seeking out. Because yeah. um, I remember when we first opened the, the deli back in 97, and I put a note on my window to say, is there something good that you had that you could sell me? And I had sign in the, the window for a year, and I didn't get one response. No, really? Now I'm getting every week, every two weeks, would you like to try this? Would you like to try that? I've got this. And, you know, we've, I think uh, through this pandemic, people are thinking um, very entrepreneurial about the food and the produce they have because I think local customers now want local food. You've seen where um, some of the supermarkets were running out of food and I think they got a lot of negative press over that because people now realise that food wasn't from Northern Ireland, and yeah. the why the reason why they couldn't have it in the shelves because they're bringing it from 
all over the world. And I think people will hopefully appreciate the farmers and the producers that we have around us now. And that's why we've taken that move to extend the range that we have existing and seek out those little guys to sort of, and their stuff is fantastic, um, and try and support them through the next few years as well. It must be heartwarming for you, you know, putting so much effort into the food that you produce to see others doing the same. And, and, and it's kind of justifying that approach that you took, which I'm sure was pretty difficult at times where it would have been easier to buy stuff in than to, you know, to buy ice cream in or to do whatever, you know, rather than, than put the effort in. Yeah, I, I, I think it would be much easier to, to uh, phone some of the big uh, wholesalers and just buy it all in. But yeah. I just couldn't live myself, David, I have to say. You know, I, yeah. I'm a stubborn bugger. And <laughs> uh, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't put that food out because, you know, when I do a wedding, and it's the same with the staff as well, if if you can't, I always think that if this was my wedding or this was my corporate event, what would I like? And I, I've always instilled that into the staff. And it's a great belief of mine that if you wouldn't serve it, to your friends and family well why would you serve it it's it has to be the best yeah. um, and that's always been our ethos and i have to say even through the last um recession um we we kept by our standards now what we had to do david to be honest we we had to do things like instead of serving fillet of beef mm-hmm. where we would have been using more uh, short horn or whatever we would have served brisket but we would have did it in an inventive way like I remember we bought these little chrome pots back in 2007 to make little mini pot roasts and they were yeah. so cute, <laughs> um, but they cost a fraction of the price, but they yeah, look yeah, fabulous. Yeah. And I think if you can, you can still keep the quality up there. Um, we weren't buying a cheap fillet. We decided to go, let's go for a really good piece of brisket of a yeah. really good animal. And um, there's ways and means of doing it. And I think you have to be entrepreneurial to to think of those ways that you can give the customer what they want at the price point that they want. Yeah. And, and that's been more sustainable for the, the meat industry as well, because rather than just, you know, using all the premium cuts, you're also going for, for some of the lesser known cuts maybe and, and making them shine in many respects. Yeah. Um, well, any chef can fry a steak. You yeah. know, it, it's it's not hard, hard to do, but I believe if you can be inventive, those other cuts. But I think the other thing that sets us apart as well, and this is where some of the small producers comes in. We grow a lot of stuff, David, and yeah. uh, you know, you've got a field out there. You can grow whatever you want. So if you can grow something that's not a commercial uh, variety, essentially, yeah. like we grow a lot of mustard leaves and stuff, and right. you you can't buy them you can't buy some of the stuff that we grow and when i write it on a menu and some of this produce nobody can replicate my menu because they can't get the stuff so that makes us unique and if i can cut that those leaves or whatever it might be or pick those vegetables and that morning before we go to an event the 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 uh, flavor really sings Uh, because i remember um I, I brought when we first started growing, we've been growing about 20 years, but I remember when we first opened the deli and I was bringing in salad leaves from the polytunnel and um, it's it's all grown sort of organically. We're not certified organic, but we don't spray or do any of that. And I remember this lady called me to the table and she said, um, Simon, um, there's, there's, there's a peculiar sort of um, taste to the lettuce. And, you know, it's quite strong. I says, yes, we call that flavour. And I know it was maybe being quite rude, but uh, but it, it showed that the, they knew there was a difference 
yeah. what we were doing was different than the norm. If you buy those gas flush bags of lettuce, number one, they're dead within a day if you put them in your fridge. If I pick my salad leaves and stuff, I could stick them in the fridge for a week and they'll still be grand, you know, if they're shocked in ice ice water and they're chilled. Now, we wouldn't do that. We, we will try and sell them within the first couple of days, you know, because we can just cut whenever we want. So t- tell us about that that feed. What else are you growing there? And it's chili that's looking at your wife that, that's looking after. Yeah, yeah. Well, we grow a lot of uh, different varieties of um, apples and pears and plums and damsons and we little Mirabelle plums and and we're making produce from that. Like traditionally in the in the summer time, we do a lot of weddings and that's where the soft herbs and um, salads and all that sort of stuff comes in. Um, funky. Of we've grown all sorts of crazy stuff over the years, David. Like some have been a bit of a disaster. In fairness, uh, we grew electric daisies once, and I was thinking, and it was like licking a nine volt battery. You know what you did when you were a kid. You know, a <laughs> really metallic flavour. And I uh, was going, what the heck are we going to do with these flipping things? So my brother, an electric daisy, electric daisies. Yeah, right. Yeah, they sort of make your tongue go numb. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he made some lemonade out of it, and. Wow. Uh, but the flipping things exploded, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Redecorate his kitchen, you know. Uh, but we have other fun things. We did the other thing that uh, was quite surprising. And I, like, I'm not a gardener, and sometimes it's probably best not to know what you shouldn't be growing or can't uh-huh. grow because uh-huh. they grow. You know, we've been growing uh, Szechuan peppers. Wow. Um, so they're pretty cool now. Now that you have to be very, very sparse on them because I, I took two or three of the very straight off the bush. And I tasted them, and oh my goodness, like so fresh, like that. Oh my goodness, I um, I asked my whole side of my face went numb, and my tongue was like stinging, and I was going, I thought I was taking a stroke. I asked my wife to take me to A and E. I'll not be asking for the session. No, no, you not need those. You not need those. But um, like other unusual things, like we we grow uh, Chilean guavas, which grow really wow. well in this country. They're a little scarlet berry, um, and apparently they're Queen Victoria's favourite fruit. Right. But we've been putting them on desserts and stuff, and people don't know what they are. But they've got a really nice, really about the size of cranberry, but they, they taste somewhere between a cranberry and like a tangerine. It's got a sort of orangey, spicy flavour. So, um. Those are completely unique. So yeah, we've been we've been having a bit of fun, David. You know, I mean, you obviously grow a lot of stuff yourself anyway. But what what do you make of the the agri food offer that's on that we have in Northern Ireland, the food that we produce, and how it compares to other parts of the world? Because sometimes I think we put ourselves down, and and, and that we think you know, oh no, stuff homegrown stuff's not that that great. But you know, there is an awful lot of stuff out there, and, and as you say, an increasing amount of good quality stuff. There's been a, a few times in my life, David, when, when I worked in London, a lot of Northern Ireland produce came over to London. And when I came back from London in the early 90s, um, you know, I looked at menus around the place and you could have guessed what were on them. There was melon and parma ham and for goodness sake, orange juice was a starter in some places. You know, you got a glass of orange juice. So there was always sort of the admiration of the exotic. You know, if yeah. it was down the road, sure, it couldn't be good. It had to be flew halfway across the road or the world. Um, so I think there has been a few times that I have seen, like I did an event in the European uh, Parliament um, when Ireland had the presidency of the European Union. They all shared for six months at a time. And... Um, I remember uh, taking out a piece of beef and I've 
uh, the chef there was very nice and very kind to us in this massive kitchen. And uh, at lunchtime, we were under pressure, myself and Barry. Poor Barry was over, giving me a hand again. And uh, we were cooking for, it was supposed to be about 300 people, um, canopies. And I took out a piece of beef and we was preparing the beef. And the chef, um, Dutch guy, came over and he, because we hadn't time to stop for lunch because we are so busy, he brought us a fillet steak with a morel sauce. Oh. And uh, I was, and there was, a, it was, it looked fabulous, like, and yeah. I, I thanked him so much, and uh, and this was this was one of the moments in my life I was so proud of being from Northern Ireland. I tasted it and I went, "That's okay." Oh. The sauce was beautiful. I didn't yeah. say that, but I says, "Would you like to taste some var beef?" So I cut a bit <laughs> off and I give it a quick fry in the pan, just yeah. a little bit of seasoning, very very simple, and I give it to him, and I could see him putting it in his mouth, and he looked at me. And he, he grabbed the plate that he just gave me and he dragged it back. <laughs> and, and he says, I give you this and you give me that. And and it was, it, it just, it really hit me at that stage. Some of the food that we have in Northern Ireland, um, not all of it, but some of the food is really, really world class. And we're getting better and better at it. Um, and I think that the producers need that because we don't have volume. Yeah. A small country with small um producers producing limited amounts of stuff so you have to go high end and i think northern ireland has a very uh, it's got green credentials mm. um and you're from a farmer background yourself david so you'll know there's a lot of small farmers around there so yeah. you need to add value to the product or make it really really premium mm. um, and i think that's the way forward for northern ireland i do believe that uh chefs and stuff in northern ireland are actively seeking out Northern Ireland produce. I know yeah. that in 2016, when we had the year of food, that was a game changer. The chefs probably at that stage, or most of the chefs that cared, knew the quality of the ingredients around us and the produce around us. I don't think the public were as aware, as aware but yeah. I think in 2016, when um, Taste of Ulster you know, organized that year of food, I think that was a tremendous help uh, for this industry to make uh, consumers aware of the food and the quality of what we have on our doorstep. Yeah, and it's a more educated consumer now, you know, and, uh, without, without means of being patronising, but you know that people people know what good food is and they, they actively seek it out. And as you say, probably the pandemic's helped that. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, I've, I've seen uh, great seafood deliveries that I've, I've enjoyed. Um, you know, these boxes coming on you, you just can't yeah. wait, you know, and I've had all sorts of stuff. Uh, mackerel and uh, lobster and hake and all of some fabulous stuff um, and it's leaping freshness was fabulous you know it was really were really really good stuff so I think if we can do more of that and let the consumer know and show yeah. them the difference um, and I think that's the role of all the chefs and and I've by opening moving away from the fine dining restaurant into a deli I believe that uh, it's not all about fine dining. Um, yeah. It's about quality. And uh, I've always believed that if you've got a coffee shop, serve the best scone that you can, all buttermilk, all butter, you know, make it the very, very best you can. Uh, yeah. It's not about food snobbery. It's not about Michelin stars all the time. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy those places. Um, I don't eat that food every day. But if it's a fish and chip shop and they do uh, good fish and chips, that's to be applauded and that's to be celebrated. And that's, I think, where we need to, to raise the bar for everyone. Tell me the um, sort of Arma Banbridge Craig Avon, that that area has a bit of a reputation as the food heartland, and you know, and the, the campaign. Does that help? You know, having other 
a lot of producers around there that are really kind of pulling towards the same aim. Yeah, well, I think the Food Heartland um, has been great to pull producers together. The contacts, the the uh, contacts between the chefs and the producer has been brilliant, and I have to say we've had lots of uh, things that we've done cooperatively, and um, and even in products like I'm I'm working on on biscuits and breads and stuff for a couple of different companies at the moment and we're using other uh, food art and producers in the area to team together to go listen if i used your this and that uh, we could produce something really good so we bounce off each other and um you know we're selling produce go well if you like my stuff, you should try my friend Jose, who makes the custard tarts. You should try his custard tarts. They're fantastic. You know, so that camaraderie um, has been good. Now, at the start, it was a little bit guarded when they first um, opened that um, discussion with those different producers because there were people who were a little bit guarded and going, well, should I talk to him when he's seen my customers? But after we get a few pints and a slap on the back, you know, and a few meetings, you know, friendships were made, lifelong friendships were made, yeah, yeah. and trust began. And I know that um, there's been it's been a really good thing, and the council brought that together, which is great. I would like to see that move on. Um, you know, the chef set up their own um, group, which I suggest it should be called Food Heartland as well, and yeah. the hospitality farm. So because we're here to produce the food and our food comes from our local suppliers and yeah. you know it it all works in terms of uh, local economy tourism all of that so you know every box is ticked there um tell me simon what what's next for the business where does it go obviously you've a very busy busy period hopefully coming up um you know where, where do you go and and, and and build from from what you've built so far well i think with the with the New realization of the Delhi Market Bay Elador, building that brand and making that mean something to people. Um, it's going to be important supporting those local producers, getting those uh, supply chains in place um, is, is going to be a, a challenge. And, uh, and, and the other thing is, we've been making ready meals and things like that, changing what we do. Because I know, realize there's a lot of people working from home, probably like yourself yeah. uh, and lots of others. So I think if we can make a really good, convenient, healthy product uh, for those people, um, that is another thing that, that we've done a lot of work on. Um, but there is challenges as well, David, to be honest, because, you know, we had a lot of staff um, at the start of lockdown and um, we've lost a, a lot of those uh, people and those skills. And it's not because I made anybody redundant. Um, you know, those people had mortgages to pay, so they didn't know when the end of this pandemic would happen. Yeah. Um, and when you've seen the extension of furlough and you've seen all the different things happening and unfolding, uh, it was quite worrying for people. And you know, we've lost probably at least 40 staff that have gone to work in supermarkets or delivery drivers or whatever, because they just didn't know if they're going to have a job yeah. in six months time. And I can't blame them, you know, so I'm hoping that we'll get most of those staff back. But <clears throat> with the order book the way it is at the moment, David, um, we're, we are going to struggle for the skill set that we need. Um, so fingers crossed there's going to be an awful lot of training in the no next number of months and getting everybody up to speed again and um, so that's that's going to be a big challenge as well and i, th I think even before pandemic uh, we were sort of direct of um skilled staff anyway um, and i think this is probably two degree uh, compacted the situation although i know that there is uh, sadly some of our competitors and stuff have, have gone to the wall they just couldn't hold out any longer um 
who knew it was going to last this long, yeah. uh, which is very sad for the staff. And I know chefs that have hung up their apron for the last time. So it's very sad to see that experience leaving uh, the sector because now um, more than ever, we need those people. Um, Simon, thanks so much for your time. Um, it's, yeah. it's great to hear the story of, of the business. And I, I know I'm not alone in, in saying that well, I go to a lot of business events or have gone to a lot of business events. And, and when you see the yellow doors catering, it kind of it goes, it goes a, a bit excited because you know you're going to get something good. So uh, thank yeah. you for all the many meals I've enjoyed. And um, yeah, thanks for your time and, and good luck in the next few months. Well, uh, thank you very much, David. And uh, I don't want to end on a low note. So I think that um, our industry has a bright future. Um, yeah. Yes, we've had we've had a right kick in over this last while, but um, I think there's going to be a, a good bounce back. And I think people will be going out there with new attitudes to local food uh, and chefs and dining out. And it may happen in a slightly different way. But I think if you seize those opportunities, I think uh, we have a bright, bright future ahead. Inspirational stuff there from Simon, who certainly knows his onions. Next, we're going to find out more about the Northern Ireland Air Ambulance from two people at the heart of its operations. Kerry Anderson is head of fundraising at the charity and charged with making sure the £2 million a year it costs to run the services met. Glenn O'Rourke is operational lead of medical services at the Air Ambulance and in charge of day-to-day running of the service, which operates 365 days a year. They have quite a story to tell. Kerry, can you just sort of set the scene for the Air Ambulance in Northern Ireland and how it's come about? Sure. So Air Ambulance Northern Ireland, we're the charity that works in partnership with the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service. And together that partnership is to provide our emergency helicopter medical service for the region, for Northern Ireland. And so we we both have uh, responsibilities with, within that and, and how we work. So the charity Air Ambulance is responsible to provide the helicopter for the base here, which is just outside of, of Lisbon. So we, we provide the, the helicopter, the fuel, the base where we are, um, also our, our pilots with a full-time engineer as well, and all of the governance that comes along with, with running a charity and being responsible to, to raise all the money that's needed to, to keep the helicopter operations going, which equates to about two million every year. And then with that, then NIAS and the ambulance service, they provide uh, all of the the doctors, the paramedics, uh, all of the medicines and the medical equipment that's used on a a daily basis. And also um, a car, so a rapid response vehicle that is used in times when the team can't go out to a call in the helicopter if perhaps maybe weather is against us in those rare occasions that weather might be against us. Or equally, if it's a uh, an incident that's happened that's really quite close to our base, and then therefore there'd be no advantage to to fly in. You know, the team would be able to get there just as quick in the car. So, so we have the car for for that as well. So, um, NIAS, you know, are responsible for all of the the clinical governance and all of the tasking. So they obviously have that expertise and can decide um, when you know it's it's appropriate for the air ambulance to to go out to a call. And, and give us a little bit of the history of the air, air ambulance and, and how it got started. So, yeah, the, the service is operational now. It'll be four years come July. 
So, um, yeah, it's, it's, and prior to that, there was a, a huge campaign um, in regards to the need for an air ambulance for Northern Ireland. Really, this region of Northern Ireland was the, was the last to, to have an air ambulance um, dedicated resource to it. Um, so it's been a long time coming and that campaigning really went on for maybe 10, 12 years um, as far back. And a, a lot of people involved in that around the need for it and took a lot of work and agreement, obviously, with, with the health structure as to how it would how it would operate uh, and so on. So the model that, that we have is uh, a doctor and paramedic team on board the aircraft. So it means we, we always have a, a that team who, who goes out. Some other air ambulances may have a, a double paramedic model. So it, it means we, we, we do have a, a first class service here and have had that now, you know, come July for, for four years. Um, you know, each each year the, the service has, has increased in terms of the number of call outs that, that we go to. So, for example, in in 2020 it was just just short of 700 call outs that we went to in that calendar year and that was an increase on the prior year by about 18 and a half percent so um you know it's 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 certainly needed and that was obviously during the year of kind of lockdown and so on as well for for us gosh so about two call outs a day on average is that is, is that a fair assessment that's right. Yeah, wow. about two. Yeah, on average, two calls a day. Now, obviously, we will have some days which will be quiet, and thankfully, everybody stays safe, and and the air ambulance team aren't needed. And um, but many other days where we have those one, two, three, four, even perhaps five callouts, for sure, averaging to about two a day. Gosh, Glenn, it sounds as if you're kept busy. Um, give me give me an idea of your role on a day to day basis and what what you do. Um, well. The, the role of, of myself, I'm the operational lead paramedic here at the service. Um, so it's probably just to make sure everything is there ready for the team to be used, such as the medication, the equipment we use. If you think about a hospital, you think about the emergency department or intensive care unit, we have to condense both those two units into one helicopter. So it's my job to try and make sure we've got the right equipment the right sort of, uh, so it's suitable for all patients, like the pediatric patients, the adult, and so forth. Making sure we've got the medications, because like as Carrie said, we are a doctor and paramedic team that deliver critical care interventions to those who are critically ill and injured. And by doing that, it's not just the equipment, but it's also using uh, sort of drug therapy to sometimes carry out a pre-hospital anesthetic or sedation. So there's a lot of governance behind mm-hmm. each of this, and it'll be my responsibility to make sure we've got the staffing, we've got the training, making sure we've got the kit, not just for that one job, but two, and, and each day, the rolling, rolling days and the weeks. Heck of a responsibility to to make sure that everything's in place, and I suppose prior preparation, as the old saying goes, <laughs> is, is key in your job more than any anybody else, really. Yeah, it is. It's and certainly not just myself. The, the, the whole team, it, it's very much a team ethos. You know, at the very start of the service, as Kerry said, we've been up for four years now. And it was putting these processes in place. Like, we have got 15 consultants, yet paramedics that work from the medical end. Like, that is uh, 22, 23 wow. professionals who are at the top of their game. There's also 23 ideas and opinions, uh, which... Sometimes you want to harness, you want to encourage, but you still need to make a decision on what's best. And yeah. we bring the whole team in together. We bring their ideas forward, but ultimately we need to do what's, what's like a standardization. So, yeah, 
it's, it's my role just to make sure we're always standardized in what we do, um, but to encourage the team input because these doctors are are working in an emergency department, they're working in anesthetics who are at the top of their game, they're they're learning new interventions, new drug therapies to what's yeah. best. And they having that resource, that means then that we do what's best for every patient as well. I, I, amazing, amazing to to see and, and to try and do that all in a in a in a helicopter as well. It's quite a, quite a thing. Tell me, what, give me, give us an idea of the kind of practicalities uh, when a call comes in um, to you guys. Yeah, so the practicality would be that on any given day we've got the Hems paramedic, the Hems doctor, and the pilot on base, and there's a fourth member of the team who is up in the emergency control room, like a call center. And anytime remember the public phones treble nine and ask for an ambulance, this fourth team member is actively listening in to every one of those calls, approximately six hundred a day, wow. and they're going, they're deciding does that caller need the air ambulance, and they use their skills, their paramedic skills, but also their knowledge from working on the team to notice to to make an assessment. Yes, you do need the critical care team, or you don't. And we talk about two calls per day. It's the airdesk paramedic, that fourth team member, who's deciding on those two calls today, not the team at the base. They decide that we're needed. For example, we talk about agriculture, uh, potential somebody who's fallen in slurry or a cattle injury or an RTC involved in a tractor. That airdesk paramedic, the fourth team member, has ascertained need interventions are needed. So they would call down to the base, and we use a terminology like a HEMS call or a treble nine call for the aircraft. The team muster around a, a a desk, like a mapping system, and they make sure they look at the, what we call their latitude and longitude. We don't go by postcodes. We go by a specific point in the map. The pilot and the paramedic would then look at landing sites. Are there high-tension power lines? Can we land Is there where we need to get roads closed? At this time, the doctor's making his way to the aircraft, and he's now putting, or she's putting her equipment into the aircraft. The, the pilot and the paramedic have had a good discussion. They've looked at the in-depth mapping system and they then walk down to the aircraft and together they form an aviation team. This aviation team then departs MLK within five minutes of that treble nine call and they make their way to, to the scene. The paramedic in the front seat is continuously talking to the airdesk paramedic about resources required or update on patient while the doctor in the back is making a clinical assessment. They, they, they go into an orbit overhead, they land, hopefully as close to the patient, and then the paramedic and the doctor form this critical care team, which would normally only be found in the hospital, and then they go and treat and, or assess and treat the patient. Uh, how big a part of your daily role or of, of the ambulance's role is involved in farms or, or indeed you know processing plants or whatever? Yeah, a lot. No, we would approximately go to one call per week, sometimes more than that. Probably about 10% of our calls is agriculture. But we use a generic term, agriculture. And it's We talk about all the, the possibilities of where that patient or people could be injured. And, for example, I mentioned like the slurry, the, the cattle, the, the sort of farming animals. Um, but by farms, by their nature, they tend to be in the remote and rural areas. And they're very resilient and resourceful group of people. They take on a lot of their own DIY jobs themselves. They would they would want to fix things themselves. Yeah. They're high heavily on family support. So what we have found then is that, you know, um, 
those sort of injuries can happen where there's only the only one person who would then go up on top of a shed or try to fix something with a or go to a cattle and then they unfortunately do get injured and so it's a big part of our work and it's logistically a, a challenge at times to to find and to land and to make sure that everything's safe and keeping ourselves safe as well um, it's a big part of, you know, of the of the, the cause and it must have made such a difference i'm sitting on a farm here in portaferry and to get to the nearest hospital at the weekend is 40 45 minutes maybe 50 minutes away um you guys for the likes of us here uh, you know it, it gives us a sense of kind of security and in, in, in that at least you know that, that that somebody can get to us in, in, a, in a reasonable time uh, you must have transformed the fortunes of of so many people that that would have been out of reach within that 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 hour or that that goal. I know I know those first few minutes of, of an injury are, are really important. So it must have transformed a, a, a lot of patient care. It has indeed. It's like you talk yourself in Port of Ferry. Um, like David, we could be with you in ten minutes. Now you think about that. Gosh, and it's not just yeah. about us bringing you to the hospital. It's about us bringing the hospital to you in ten minutes and to perform wow. those life saving interventions and then bring you to definitive care. I've had the, mm-hmm. the luxury of, or the fortune of working as a paramedic prior to the service here in Northern Ireland. And I know what it's like to travel down from Belfast to Portaferry, a 45, 50 minute journey to somebody who's seriously injured. Four years later, you put me in that aircraft. I know you've got a fighting chance now after those 10 minutes. I can perform as a team those interventions along with our NIAS colleagues to then do what we can and then get you to a suitable hospital where then we will hand over the care to the experts and not not thing. Gosh, that's that's so powerful when you put it like that, you know, just just brings it into life. Um, Kerry, you have the the task of 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 making sure that the funding continues to come in for the air ambulance, etc. You, you touched on it there briefly. Um, it's such a vital service, uh, uh, and and yet you've still got to raise what two million pounds a year? Is that correct? Yeah, two million pounds a year, David. So it's as we said, it's, it sounds like a very big figure, and even on a daily basis, five and a half thousand pounds per day, uh, it's still a big figure. But you know, with a population here, roughly one point eight million. So uh, I suppose my message is always: if everyone does a little bit, then you know this is very manageable to maintain and, and sustain and and have the service here for each of us every day now and for for years to come. You know, and um, certainly the in the rural families, the agribusness sector, the farmers, they have been one of the very first supporters of, of our ambulance. Um, and kind of thinking back to the start, uh, the Ulster Farmers Union, who took the charity on just before the service actually went live. Um, they, they made the decision. Barclay Bell was the, the president uh, of, of the Ulster Farmers Union at that time. And it was such a show of confidence, I think, around the service to, to do that just before it went live. And it was their centenary year. So they set a target of raising £100,000. And over about the next 18 months, they doubled that and raised 200000 which was absolutely incredible. Um, absolutely. You know, but over and above even the funds that were raised through that, it was it was just the, it was the awareness and the profile you know, Air Ambulance, the the, the name um, and the value that each of those rural homes, you know, took on with a service was something that we as a local and very small charity just would not have been able to do without that without that partnership. Um, so certainly the rural families and so on have, have got it. Um, 
2020, of course, has meant the fundraising has been so much more difficult. Um, certainly, there has been a decline in, in our income. But again, once again, um, you know, the, the rural, we've just established an agribusiness committee. So it's a, it's a group of, of nine members who, on a voluntary basis, are helping the charity to, to raise the profile and, and raise funds. So um, it's again, Barclay is, is Barclay Bell is now one of our trustees. So our, our charity is, is governed by a, a voluntary group of, of a board of trustees, like many charities would be. Um, so Barclay has, has brought this group together and uh, they they will be helping. So one of the, the first activities that they have established is, a, is an auction. So uh, that will be through the, the Mardai platform that I'm sure many of your listeners, David, could be familiar with. So Mardai.ie mm-hmm. and they're doing a, an auction on Friday the 16th of April at seven o'clock in the evening. The, the committee have already secured over a hundred prizes, uh, vast majority of which are are agri and farm related. Um, I have to say, David, not all of them. I even understand what they are. <laughs> being being the the agri the agri sector. Sure. So, um, but I'm I'm assured we've we've some good straws there up up for grabs. Um, we've with heifers and again for, for those that are, aren't aren't um farming and agri with with everything from home heating oil to parachute jumps and and all sorts in between so th- this good. first event is is actually going to be um between air ambulance um and and also one of the local cancer charities as well so um it's entitled the auction of hope and as i say that that's friday the 16th of, of april which is is Great, you know, even through lockdown, it's been lovely to see how inspired people are around the air ambulance service um, and the creative and innovative ways, you know, that people have come up with to to support. Great, and and also th- there's an opportunity for corporates to get involved with the air ambulance as well, Kerry. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We we um, you know, the the corporate sector is is so important to us and. You know, whilst many of our, our big businesses, obviously within Northern Ireland, are are in Belfast, you know, we're we're talking here about the the rural callouts and things like that. You know, actually, Belfast as a as a local council area is our third busiest council area for for um for callouts. Um, obviously due to population density, and usually about half of what we go out to is road traffic collision. Um, so you know, the residents wow. and, and the corporates within within Belfast and every town and city is is so crucial. It, it does take everybody to to get on get on board. But whether that is a, a charity of the year partnership or you know sponsoring one of the events that that we have, or perhaps thinking about how employees can give through payroll giving and things like that is is um, is brilliant. We do actually have a a membership club called Club AANI where individuals can join as a member and um, usually they give through direct debit. So it's a small amount that they give every month. Um, so it's as little as two pounds per week. And that's one that individuals can set up, um, as I say, through direct debit or if it's within your, your payroll scheme, it works very well from, from that point of view as well. So.
Great to get some real life insight there from both Glenn and Kerry. With that, the fourth episode of the Fifth Quarter podcast comes to a close. I hope you've enjoyed it. And please do get in touch if you want to tell us your agri-food story. I'd like to thank Arma City, Banbridge and Craig Avonborough Council's Food Heartland for their support and to all of our contributors for their time. Thanks for listening and look out for next month's episode. Thank you.